Thank you, Hal. Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church here on our, I guess you could say, the Independence Weekend, Independence Celebration. So, happy birthday to you. I think we're somewhere in the vicinity of 241 years old. 240? Well, some look a little older. I don't know why. (laughs) Anyhow, uh, welcome. Certainly glad to have you here this morning. Uh, As we prepare to study the Word of God, we have a few seconds for spiritual preparation. Uh, This is our opportunity for personal, private confession of sins. Uh, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And uh, we all need that that brief opportunity, and the opportunity is between you and God the Father as you uh, express your um, either confession of sins, as I said, or your commitment now to the worship service. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he will meditate day and night. He shall, be like, he shall be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall never wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. We have a few seconds for us to close our eyes, bow our heads. This is your opportunity between you and God the Father, and then I'll open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to you today in our worship service, we also know that the events that surround this day in history, the Declaration of Independence, is certainly not isolated to a specific date, but it was a period of time and events that were occurring. And we know that those who participated believed that your hand played a remarkable role, even at times addressed as miracles. We're thankful, Father, that those who were there, eyewitnesses, those participating, have given us that testimony that this is not a secular nation, not a nation that simply by chance or by maybe a few privileged uh, individuals uh, benefited or took charge. We're thankful that they recognized the sovereign hand of the Creator. Father, we continue to recognize your sovereign hand in our lives and in the, uh, the nation as it exists today. We pray that we would not forget this. We also pray, Father, that we would not give in to those who uh, teach a false message, a false doctrine of who we are in this nation, America, a nation that truly was founded on biblical principles. And we're also thankful, Father, that that is possible because of your great gift to us, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that through him we may have a relationship with you because he paid for 
the sins of the world on the cross. And it's because of the cross that we are not only redeemed, but we have the opportunity to have eternal life simply by believing in his finished sacrificial work on the cross. Therefore, Father, as we begin our worship service this morning, we are thankful for your graciousness to us and to our nation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Hal. And thank you, Janet. Wonderful singing. Congregation. The uh, songs that we just sang, first of all, the Star-Spangled Banner uh, has always been probably a difficult song for many to sing, uh, simply because of the structure of it. But uh, when I was stationed in California with my older brother Rick, uh, we would go to baseball games there watching the uh, Padres play. And we made a point of memorizing the last stanza. So as everyone was singing, we were belting out this, uh, most places it's the fourth stanza, and ours it's the third stanza. And we would always, people would kind of turn and look at us, wondering if we were singing in a foreign tongue. But um, that is a marvelous, uh, it has great meaning. And I think it really captures uh, the time and the essence of what Francis Scott Key was writing. And then on the other hand, uh, My Country Tis of Thee has just always been one of my favorite because um, My Country Tis of Thee, meaning the Lord. Uh, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, uh, Psalm thirty-three, twelve. This is a song that relates... Truly, what our nation means, and if I can use the phrase who we are, this is what relates to who we really are. And it's at least what we should be, even though it is under attack today. Now, we are in Psalm 25, and I plan to turn to Psalm 25 in a moment, but uh, first of all, let me get us started here on Independence Day. Independence Day, uh, our 240th, very often when we think of the Declaration of Independence, we almost need to slowly seep back into 1775 as well. But uh, this is a date that John Adams said should be a reverent day, a day that is celebrated with solemn prayer and thanksgiving, but also celebrated. And I think that that's true because it was recognized by John Adams and by others that this nation would not have... Uh, come into existence had it not been for the hand of God. History was moving us in this direction as we look at events in Europe with the Protestant Reformation and 
uh, the, the persecution that was ongoing there and people uh, moving out from, uh, from Europe and England. Uh, England does not like to be uh, associated with uh, the continent. They uh, see themselves as being separate. But anyhow, coming to the United States. And <clears throat> this morning, as we remember the birth date of our nation, the 240th anniversary of the signing of independence, I do have uh, one of our pictures that that represents this. And this is John Trumbull's painting, and it hangs in the rotunda. But for many of us today, we see our nation, uh, what it appears to be heading in the wrong direction, um, we know from uh, even uh, a very simple understanding of our founders that they were uh, profoundly, and they used the term religious, they were profoundly uh, committed to the word of God. And uh, almost every painting, uh, at least four paintings on the, uh, I think it's the south side of the rotunda in the Capitol building, are all dedicated to a spiritual significant event that occurred. And one of them happens to be the baptism of Pocahontas. Uh, And at the time of her baptism, she changed her name. She said that at the time of baptism, names should be changed because she believed she saw that in the Word of God as well. And she changed her name to Rebecca. Now, she's not known as Rebecca today because for some reason that would be an affront to uh, our secularists who reach back and say, no, her name is Pocahontas. Well, not according to Pocahontas. She said her name was Rebecca and that's how she was known uh, after her conversion and her baptism. But in the United States today, uh, we see um, our our history, our media, um, Hollywood, everything, uh, certainly the judiciary and even the govern- many govern- governing bodies uh, overtaken by those who uh, believe that if you have some sort of a, uh, a, a spiritual inclination, that that needs to be kept within the confines of a local building. But that's not how the United States began. And this morning, uh, as we uh, continue to hear that this is a secular nation and that Christianity has no part in our founding, uh, I think just a casual reading of the writings of our founding fathers, our ancestors, tell us differently. And before we turn to uh, Psalm 25, I'd just like to use just a few of these uh, opportunities, two of these quotes. Our first president, and before that, before he became president, he was our commander-in-chief, we might say, George Washington, had a profound faith. Now, it wasn't something that he exhibited uh, openly all the time. However, um, he had um, many 
aides that helped him and those who supported him even after he became president. And it was known that George Washington prayed often. As a matter of fact, um, I believe it was James Madison. Uh, it may have been uh, someone else, but I believe it was James Madison. could have been um, uh, Hamilton. But they would periodically come to his office and he often said, the door's open, don't worry. But every now and then it would be uh, just a little bit ajar, uh, somewhat closed. And they would walk in and he would be on his knees praying behind the desk. And one of the reasons he was praying is because uh, the nation was in uh, uh, going through some very difficult times. Uh, and mostly uh, it, was, uh, it was difficult to pull the nation together. But anyhow, he had a profound faith. And it's often obscured and questioned, but upon his appointment as commanding general of the Continental Army, and again, this is in 1775, one of his first orders is as follows. On July the 3rd, and this is 241 years ago in 1775, George Washington took command of the newly formed Continental Army. Congress had selected him, one of its own members, to organize the farmers and local militia groups into an army capable of defeating the world's greatest military power. And that is every now and then lost on us. Uh, for eight years, that battle waged here in the colonies. And uh, by any measure, the colonists had no chance um, for many reasons. One of the reasons is, first of all, that most of the colonists did not want to be free. They did not want to have a separation from England. Uh, there were many loyalists even after the war was over who still believed that they were uh, they belonged to England and they considered themselves English and um, during the war somewhere in the vicinity of, uh, I think it was eight or 80,000, I can't remember, loyalists actually departed from the United States. There were somewhere in the vicinity of four million uh, inhabitants at that time. But anyhow, when he was uh, assigned as the commanding general of the Continental Army, which was quite an undertaking, one of his first orders to the new American military set a clear tone for what he expected from his troops and also told us much, much about his character. In that order, Washington urged that every officer and man will endeavor so as to live and act as becomes a Christian soldier. Those were his words. As becomes a Christian soldier, defending the dearest rights and liberty of his country. That is, troops display Christian character again, was important to Washington. And he later additionally charged them to the distinguished character of patriot. He used the term patriot here. It should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. Now, a lot can be said about what he may or may not have believed, but when you start asking people to be Christian soldiers and to add to your character... Uh, the, that which is representative of Christianity, well, you have to recognize the word Christ in there. There are many other examples 
Washington in his farewell orders, and this was when he uh, resigned as commander-in-chief. There were many who wanted him to stay on and just be king or be the monarch, the dictator, take over. But he said, no, he's, that was not why America had fought this war. And he said, the singular, the singular interpositions of providence in our feeble condition were such, when he's referring to when they uh, embarked upon the, uh, the war for independence, uh, were such as could scarcely escape the attention of the most unobserving, while the perseverance of the armies of the United States through almost every possible suffering and discouragement of the space of eight long years was little short of a standing miracle. Now, we don't attribute miracles to just some secular force. We attribute it to God. Chief Justice John Jay noted in 1777, this glorious revolution is distinguished by so many marks of divine favor and interposition that no doubt can remain of its being supported in a manner so singularly, and I may say miraculous, that when future ages shall read its history, they will be tempted to consider it a great part of its fabulous beginning. Well, here we have the, uh, the recognition of the divine favor and interposition. Samuel Adams in 1776, there are instances of an almost astonishing providence in our favor. And when we talk about providence, we're talking about God's sovereign actions. That's what this means. Uh, almost astonishing favor, uh, providence in our favor. Our success has staggered our enemies and almost given faith to infidels. Well, their infidels are pretty hard to persuade at times, but Anyhow, uh, Sam Adams thought it might have given faith to infidels. So that we may truly say, it is not our own arm which has delivered us. The hand of heaven appears to have led us on to be perhaps humble instruments and means in the great providential dispensation which is upon us, which is completing. Benjamin Franklin, of course, stated at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, um, I can always throw Benjamin Franklin in here because most uh, of our historians today believe that he was at the very best a deist and possibly even an atheist. But in the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for the divine protection. So this is in 1787 when they were working on the Constitution, writing the Constitution and having such difficulty writing the Constitution. As a matter of fact, there is described in history two, what are believed, many historians at least, describe as two profound miracles. One is the writing of the Declaration of Independence, pulling the 13 colonies together. And the other one was the writing of the U.S. Constitution which, again, took these 13 sovereign colonies and bound them together. And it's believed that uh, that could only possibly have happened maybe at that time. But anyhow, he said, we had prayer in this room 
for divine protection. They were back in Philadelphia. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. Uh, Anyone who believes uh, has a deist faith doesn't believe that God answers prayers. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our behavior, in our favor, rather. Uh, So these are just a few, and I really do mean these are just a few. Uh, There are many, many more that could be could be read. What I'd like to do is uh, address one more thought. Uh, Today, well, no, let me move on to uh, Psalm 25. Um, Otherwise, I think I'm going to run shy of time here. Psalm 25. Open your your Bibles if you have not already done so to Psalm 25, and we will take a look at the first, hopefully the first 11 verses here. Psalm 25, we see that this, in fact, is a psalm of David. Uh, The psalm is identified as one written by David, but it's difficult to place in David's life. Uh, Very often, the the superscript will tell us that this happened at a certain time. Other, um, with other psalms, we can read them and sort of place it. This one is a little bit difficult. But one thing for certain, David needs help. He needs help. He needs deliverance. uh, He needs comfort from the Lord. And I've chosen this one because today there is a sense within uh, America within believers in the United States that we need um, God's divine hand again to turn us from the direction we're going. Well, that's going to happen when the nation as a whole once more is obedient and is faithful to him, recognizing him in their lives. Uh, it's very difficult for a nation to pass the prosperity test. And America, I believe, finds itself in that position. But David here is, realizes his need. Um, David will mix his trust in the Lord with his confession of sins and failure, which, by the way, we all face uh, in our daily pressures of life. We're going to see his plea for deliverance and his strong recognition of the character of God. Uh, that's one of the things we see in the writings of the Old Testament is uh, the descriptions of God char- God's character. Uh, Therefore, as we begin, let me read through the first 11 verses. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Verse 4, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. Probably a better translation there is deliverance. On you I wait all day. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses. For they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me. For your goodness sakes, for your goodness sake, O Lord. 
verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. He, uh, The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths, uh, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your, na- <clears throat> for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my, my iniquity, for it is great. And you'll notice here to, in verse 11, the pardoning of my iniquity, for it's great. He adds that um, to verse 7, do not remember the sins of my youth. So as he is uh, speaking to the Lord, he is also realizing that there's a need for the confession of sins. And so he does. Verse 1 here, and again, one of the reasons I've chosen this is because it it provides us, I believe, uh, several uh, factors for us on this Independence Day weekend. And first of all, it is a true recognition of God and his power uh, his uh, hand in our lives. And David begins this way. He says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. The word here for lift up is the word meaning to lift. Very often has the sense of carrying. But the emphasis in the verse as we begin is towards God. It's The emphasis is towards God. And you'll notice it's to you, O Lord. And the word there for the Lord is Yahweh. Uh, the What we would call more of the personal or the uh, covenantal God of Israel. And the phrase, lift up my soul, is a figure of speech meaning to approach God. And in this case, we're talking about prayer. This is prayer. David is raising, if we could say, his consciousness. He's, he's lifting his soul, but what he's doing is he, he's engaging in what we would call communion with God. Uh, he is in need, and he's expressing his trust or his reliance on God, but he is now beginning a prayer. And prayer is a much neglected, I think, a much neglected instrument in the believer's spiritual life. Uh, For even those who are committed to prayer, it's very easy to be distracted from it. Uh, It's something that must be consciously scheduled, consciously defended, uh, because every morning there is something important to do. And we wake up, and really the first thing is, I need to get into the day. Well, what we really need to do is have a conversation with the God who brought us through the night, who allows us to wake up, who gives us our next breath and our next heartbeat. But prayer is much neglected. And one of the real problems with that is that the Lord wants to commune with us. God wants to. And when we understand that we realize that here is a God the God the only God who truly wants to have a relationship and have a conversation with you every now and then 
will meet another human being who just sees themselves as just a little too important to spend any time with you. Or if they spend any time with you, it's minimal and it's rather condescending. Here's God who wants to spend time with you. And he not only desires it, but he commands us to spend time with him, to pray. It's commanded. We could go to many passages, but 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says not only to pray, it's not only a command to pray, but it's to command without ceasing. We're to have an ongoing relationship with him. That's what he desires for us. Hebrews 4.16, we must therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Again, the... Uh, the power of the imperative there. So our prayer life is where we connect with God on a personal level. And our God is a personal God. He's not impersonal. He desires for us to commune with Him in a personal way. And if we ignore our prayer life, we truly are ignoring our God. I don't know how many people who could say in a relationship uh and in that relationship, they never speak. They never talk. How in the world you could, it could not be evident that you were ignoring the other person? But if we ignore our prayer, our prayer life, we're ignoring God. And believers who have a vibrant prayer life also have a more tranquil, contented attitude towards life and their future. It's just there. And... Uh, I think that when we talk about prayer, we I've in the past um, recommended a prayer list. And I'm not recommending a prayer list simply so that in one minute you can rapidly mention these five things. When you wake up in the morning and you are in a hurry, yes, sometimes it needs to be done quickly. But the reason that we are mentioning these things to God is because they're important to us. And it shouldn't be just drive-by prayer. Why is it important that you're mentioning these things to God? Do you have a reason? And is there a basis for God answering those prayers? Well, discuss that with the Lord. Wherever we see... Uh, biblical characters in earnest prayer they are reasoning with the Lord they're talking to him about his character the importance of the prayer request and why it's important for the Lord to answer this request now the Lord knows all that but the Lord wants us to commune with him in that way and when you do that you cannot help but come away from that prayer with a completely different view, an attitude. Verse 2 says, Oh my God, I trust in you. Oh my God. Again, David addresses the Lord directly and personally. He says, Oh my God. Uh, God ha- uh, David has this personal relationship. Oh my God, I trust 
the word trust here is a strong word for trust, batak, and it does mean to rely upon something, lean upon something, have confidence in it. I trust in you. Um, we often say that we trust in the Lord, but it's not always evident in how we live our lives. Um, that doesn't mean we do nothing. Now, there are some who trust in the Lord for something in their lives, and then they promptly do nothing. Well, that's not how the Lord wants us to trust him. We know he is going to guide our paths, and we need to be moving down those paths. God can't direct our paths if we're sitting or doing nothing. Oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. The word here for triumph may be better translated exalt, or we could even say rejoice over me. Um, David here is establishing his close relationship with the Lord, and in a way is saying, God, you can't allow what's happening to continue. You know, here I am, in whatever condition he was in, he believed that he was either in a position to be shamed or his enemies had triumphed over him and they were rejoicing. Um, this is how someone prays who really knows the Lord, who are not afraid to go confidently before the throne of grace and engage the Lord in what's occurring in their lives. Um, David lays down a marker with God, and we, we might find this to be a bit too bold, to be disrespectful, but it's as if God is saying, you wanted me to trust you, I'm trusting you, now what's happening, Lord? Explain this to me, make it real to me, help me understand it. Why is my enemies... Rejoicing over me. Well, that's, that's David's approach here. Saying that, Lord, don't abandon me after I've been obedient and have placed my confidence in you. And you know, we, at times, may not understand the frustration of others, but God understands our frustration. He does understand it. And that's one of the reasons he wants us to come to him so that he can assist us in those, those times. David here reasons that, is it, that if he's trusting in the Lord and being faithful, then he should not be brought to a place of shame. But if his enemies, meaning also God's enemies here, because that would be one and the same, if they are successful and exulting over him, then of course he is shamed and what else is happening here? His faith, what he believes, even the God in whom he believes, is being shamed. And today we can make this association because Christians all across America are in fact being shamed. They're shamed in schools, in their businesses, in the courtroom, in the news media, and are being accused of bigotry and hatred for just expressing a belief in what the Bible says. Because we believe what the Bible says doesn't mean we're bigots. And it doesn't mean we're filled with hate. And for those who characterize us in that way, they have an agenda. 
because what they're trying to do is prejudice those who are listening to what we really believe. In verse 3, indeed, no one who waits, and the word here for waits means it's sometimes used contextually to mean eagerly waiting. They're anxiously waiting, we could say. In other contexts, it seems like it's saying we are patiently waiting. In either case, there is a sense here that there's a sense of expectation. Something is going to happen. And we're anxiously awaiting it, or we know it's going to happen, so we're patiently waiting. And it says, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those who... Um, be let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. And the second colon here, uh, or line, is what we would call antithetical parallelism. Notice it's a contrast. Uh, indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed, but we could say let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. And the one who waits on the Lord should not be ashamed, according to David's understanding, of the Lord's character and his promises. But the one who is treacherous, deceitful, or unfaithful, who ignores justice and deity and decency, that person should experience shame. So our translation, that second line, let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause, it's not a bad translation, but it doesn't mean very much to us. Um, but let those be ashamed who are treacherous, um, are who are, and it's a strong word, who are wantonly treacherous. And then we would say without justice, without a cause here means they have no right to be that way. <clears throat> Verse 4 says... Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach teach me your paths. The word for show is the word that's often used uh, for, for know. But the grammar here, because we have what's known as a hifal stem, is causative. So the word show is probably correct. Uh, very literally, it's cause me cause me to understand your ways. And when we see the word ways here, uh, where it's translated often throughout the Bible, it's going to be translated as a path or a way. But it has the sense here of methods. Show me this. Cause me to understand. So David wants to ensure that he knows God's will. He knows God's will and he knows God's ways. So that, he, so that he can be faithful to what God desires and what God expects of him. What does God expect of us? Well, unless we know his ways, we don't know. We cannot do them. Um, so David says, cause me to know. And this is more than a, a mere delivery of information. It means that David wants the information to be driven home in his life the word teach means in the second line teach me your paths really means to exercise 
it has the sense of repetition. So teach me, uh, take me uh, into an exercise, something that is repetition. Teach, instruct me in your paths. And again, this is not just, I want to see some sort of a path over here. It means directions, uh, actions, we would say. Uh, And what David is requesting here is an extensive workout in the gym. David wants no doubt about what God's plan is for his life. And the question might be asked here, what benefit is it for us to spend our lives on earth having missed God's plan and purpose for our lives? Why were we created? Why are we here? Why does God desire to have a relationship with us? It's because he wants us to know what he wants us to do. For a few years of pleasure pursuing our personal path, which generally is filled with frustration and disappointment, we could have contentment and fulfillment by following God's ways. And that's what David is saying. I want to know your ways. I want to know your methods, your manners, your directions for my life. David says, don't let it happen to me that I go through life not knowing what you wanted me to do. Verse 5, lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. So David does not merely wish to be led. He wants to be driven here. Lead me. The word that we have, again, for lead is in that hithel stem, and it means that it's causative. And the word itself means to tread or to march. And there is a sense here, we might even say, of training. Therefore, we would say, lead me on a track take me Um, David is asking to to be taken on a strenuous trip we might say a forced march David wants to move out and trek until he knows or arrives at what God wants him to know so lead me even drive me in your truth and teach me there's our word for teach again to exercise to teach uh, it's intensive. For you are the God of my salvation. The word, the, the God of my salvation is uh, the God of deliverance. God knows that his deliverance in life. He is, he is a believer. We, we, in the Old Testament, we call them Old Testament saints. He's an Old Testament saint. But God has placed him in many difficult situations. And David says... You're the God of my deliverance. I know that my deliverance depends upon you, not on his own schemes or his own devices. And because he was not going to be able to uh, push God or rush God for deliverance, David simply decides to wait. He wants deliverance, but he also knows that he needs to wait. And the phrase all day means that he will wait patiently. As the day wanes, he's not anxious. He's still waiting. And this very often happens in our lives. We pray, we ask for something, and what happens? Well, we would like the answer 
right away, instantly. But that is not God's ways. And sometimes we wait for a very long time until something actually occurs. Verse 6 says, Remember, O Lord, your mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. David here is not really reminding the Lord. David is reminding himself. And again, he's interacting in a way that seems as if he's asking the Lord to remember, but he's interacting with the Lord as a human being would interact. Therefore, when he says um, to remind, remember, O Lord, he's cycling this doctrine about the Lord through his mental capacitors, we might say, to energize himself. He's asking the Lord to remember, but what he's really saying here is, Lord, you know that you're my deliverer. You know that I need deliverance. And you also know that in the past you have delivered me. Remember that. And in a way, praying in this manner gives gives David contentment. He's not as worried. It drives away the anxiety that he might have in his life. Lord, remember me. Well, can the Lord remember this? Yes. The Lord's never forgotten it. And not only that, the Lord knows exactly what he's going to do next. Um, In a way, David is saying, Lord, remember with the intentions. Remember with the intentions of repeating or remaining consistent with what you have done in the past. Uh, The word here for tender mercies is compassions. Compassions. The word for loving kindnesses is excellently translated. It's it's chesed. It means loyal love or covenant faithfulness. For they are from of old. Uh, From of old. This is the character of God. This is the nature of God. Therefore, David recognizes the immutable character of God. They don't change. Lord, remember, that's how you've dealt with Israel. That's how you've dealt with others. Deal with me in that way. And remember, you have dealt with me in that way. I think that's what he's saying. Um, I'll get to this in a moment. But notice how, um, how David continues to appeal to the character of God. And what part of his character is he addressing? Is he remembering? Um, is he, uh, does he find important here? And it's on the compassionate side. He's not saying, Oh Lord, uh, remember your righteousness and your justice here and just lay waste to me. You know, get out the two before. No, he's appealing to God's mercy. And God recognizes that that's who we are. And by the way, if it wasn't for his mercy and his grace, we would not be here. Yes, our point of contact is righteousness, his righteousness. But it is truly his policy of grace and mercy that that provides for us on a daily basis. Verse 7, Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your mercy, chesed here, your loyal love, remember me for your goodness. And I think here this is a reference to his character. Your goodness sake, O Lord. 
uh, maybe a little bit better translation of this is according to my sins and my transgressions don't remember me but according to your loyal love remember me now isn't that a wonderful way to, to, to talk to somebody I mean isn't that the way we would have loved our parents at times to remember us uh, don't remember us according to all the faults we have remember us according to how much you love us isn't that wonderful isn't that a, a wonderful approach well that's David's approach here we often do as David does at the beginning of this verse he remembers his failures and wonders if the Lord remembers also Am I still absorbing punishment for those failures, those sins? And there are a lot of people who cannot forget their sins. They continue to feel guilty about those sins long after they've been confessed. And in reality, those guilt feelings, of course, are sins in themselves. We confess our sins and they're gone. And now we need to move on in our lives and we don't need to live our lives as if for some reason God cannot now take us forward in his service. We may have marred ourselves one way or the other, but we're still useful to the Lord. The actual meaning of this line is, Father, I pray that you are not continuing to hold me accountable for those, we might say, stupid failures or sins of my youth. And again, many people have guilt feelings or thought of continued failure because of youthful indiscretions or just outright blunders. But we need to confess our sins and move on. Do not allow previous sins with which God has forgiven and forgotten to encumber the potential of your spiritual life. And we do that all the time. We restrict God in moving forward in our Christian life because we can't get over our failures. God already has. Only God can really accomplish this request. As humans, we find it hard to forgive and forget. Here David almost humorously requests that God not remember David for who David is, but God to remember David for who God is. And thank God that is how God remembers us. He relates to us based on his character. Not on ours. This is what God tells us that he wants us to do and understand. David simply rec uh, recollects a marvelous problem, a promise that God has told his children. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our sins from us. Uh, the word goodness here, I believe, means his character, your goodness, your character. Uh, and we'll see that word used again. In, in verses 8 through 11, let me just quickly round 8 through 11 up for us because we need to handle these. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice and the humble he teaches his way. Notice that again, good and upright, the word here for upright is the word straight is the Lord. So the Lord is going to do what's right. And then he says, therefore, he, God, teaches the sinner. He guides in justice. 
And the word here for injustice, we might say, uh, he does, he teaches in what is correct, what is right. And the humble, he teaches his way. The, the emphasis here is on what God is doing in our lives. He teaches, he guides, he teaches. David is petitioning for that. All the paths of the Lord are mercy, chesed, and truth. To keep, uh, to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. So, the Lord will treat us in mercy. He'll treat us in truth when we're obedient, keeping, observing. <clears throat> Verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. You know, David here understands his failures. His failures are probably never that far from his mind. And he confesses them. And that's precisely what we need to do. We need to have short accounts. Confess the sins. <clears throat> God knows them. He knew them in eternity past. Why are we waiting? Every now and then somebody thinks <clears throat> that bad news gets better with time. Well, it doesn't. And with the Lord, the sooner we confess, the sooner we're in fellowship, the sooner we can sooner we can claim the fact that He has removed those sins from us, and now we can begin recovery. We can begin walking by means of the Spirit, and we can also begin producing the fruit of the Spirit. And this is David's conscious effort here of petitioning the Lord, but also knowing that he needs to ensure that his sins are confessed. Let's take just a few seconds, or excuse me, let's close our eyes and bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for David. We're thankful for his prayer here. And as we look at this passage, <clears throat> Father, we know that uh, as, a, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ here in America, many, <clears throat> many have just simply failed the prosperity test. And you have been placed on the back burner or moved to a very low priority in our lives. We have little or no time for you. We like to check the block every now and then, but it's really meaningless. Help us to have a meaningful spiritual life, a life that involves uh, reading the Word of God, prayer, uh, and indicating our love for you by wanting to serve you. We know that you've given us the abilities, the assets to do this. Father, we ask not only for uh, our faithfulness and um, our commitment, but we ask for a return to the United States for the same. So that this nation that was so wonderfully uh, established on biblical principles would once more return to that so that we might continue to receive your blessing and that we as a nation might continue to serve you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.